Welcome to In Defense Humanity. My name is Ostris Oz Miller. My co-host is, of course, Khalid Johnson. Today, we're joined by Layla Muscat. Layla, please introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Layla Muscat. Uh, I spent time at Young Harris College, where I met Khalid and Ostris, and now I'm currently in Cardiff, Wales. Excellent. And Layla, before we started recording, has informed me that I was uh, erroneously proclaiming that she was a pro footballer, uh, semi-pro, which in the US, as some of you guys know, they're in a similar tier, even though we have MLS and other classes, you know, you can still make payment. So unfortunately, our dear friend here has a few things to tell us before we even get started. Yeah, I mean, it was just, I thought it was funny that you claimed I was professional football. That'd be great. And that is the goal, but that's not the case at the moment. No income for me, which doesn't bother me because I just play football because I love it. But yeah, nah, not a pro at the moment. Not as of yet. Indeed. And you recently started uni again. What are you studying? Yeah, so I'm currently taking a conversion postgraduate course in psychology because my American degree isn't really worth much here, which I found out. So after this year, once I gain uh, a qualification from my current university at Cardiff, my degree will actually be worth something. And then I can continue on to do my master's in forensics, which is the goal. Okay, perfect, perfect. So before we even get started asking any hard-hitting questions that may or may not get you kicked out of your nation, um, we're going to ask where you started. So you obviously went to secondary school somewhere, I think in Wales, then you went to uni. Was your first uni Young Harris? I did not see you at Young Harris before, but also I was barely ever there. So. That's also true. No, my first uh, American college was Schoolcraft College, which is in Michigan. It's a community college, so I was only there for two years. Mm. And then I transferred to Young Harris for my junior year and graduated there this last May. Sort of graduated given the, the pandemic. Mm. Nice, nice. And, um, you know, Young Harris, as, as we've established, has no real accolades in United Kingdom, Wales specifically. So you didn't waste time, but you could have been more efficient, <laughs> as could we all have. Um, as Khalid and I, Khalid's in grad school, I'm uh, doing things that I don't have security clearance to talk about. But, you know, it's, all of our lives are inefficient in some way. At least you're playing football. Uh, Khalid's doing his art thing. I'm here talking so you know every everything's interesting so Layla tell us something what are you passionate about these days um these days I'd actually say recently probably like the last six months um I've become more passionate with the environment and I didn't think that was going to be a step that I was going to take so yeah maybe this last this last year I guess Given everything that went on, I think a lot of us have had more time to just kind of reflect and look at how we see things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, like, a lot of human rights issues have been going on. Um, 
far more in the US, which we all see. Um, but globally as well, we've been noticing these things that just we kind of kept under the rug, I think, and disregarded like they're irrelevant, but they're not. And then with regards to just the world as a whole, I think the way we look after it and the people that, the people and the animals and just everything that belongs here, we just, we've kind of treated it in such that it's, it's not important. And I just think you wouldn't treat your home like that. You wouldn't treat your local communities like that. So why do we treat it like that as a whole? Mm-hmm. Why do we not look at it as something that we want to care about and treat with compassion, I suppose? So I I think I care about a lot of things that I didn't think I cared about maybe a year or two ago. And I've met a lot of people that have opened my mind to these things as well, which has been good. Interesting. I remember it once. I think you were at work and I walked by and I just mentioned something about the environment and then we had a quick chat and I was like, ah, I'm just, but that's me. I just randomly walk up to people and talk about uh, subjects that they probably did not want to hear about. And then I walk away uh, to leave them to think about it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a cool guy, but. You did that, to be fair. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely did it more than once. So, well, you know, I'm trying to downplay what I do. Mm. but I'm glad that you say that. So I assume you're, you're not a poacher or a hunter. Absolutely not. <laughs> no way. Okay. You know, it, it's good to ask because I have people out here cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I care about nature, the, the order, the balance. And that's why I go and hunt elk. And I was like, oh, okay. No. <laughs> no. So as far as like, you know, being more environmentally conscious, you know, um, and kind of like a more inspired environmental activism, you know, what kind of things have you been doing, like in light of um, that kind of recognition? Yeah, I think from like at the start of it, and just when I kind of realized how detrimental everything was, it's overwhelming. You think, well, what can one person do to help the environment? So I think if you just think of, you focus on the little things like, um, being more conscious of how often you travel, like whether you're using a bike, whether you're walking, whether you're using public transport. Your diet is a massive thing because it turns out, which I didn't know, agriculture is the leading cause of global warming. So you just cutting out meat and dairy. It doesn't even need to be all the time, but mostly could make a huge impact because right now we don't have enough space. We don't have enough animals and cattle to feed like 8 million people that want to eat meat and cheese and drink milk all the time. And it's just little things like that, that I think if we can make it sound like it's not, like we're not shoving it down people's throats, maybe they'll listen. Because I think a lot of people, when you tell them that, you know, maybe a plant-based diet is what's best, they look at you as you say, well, I like my steaks and mm-hmm. I like yeah. and so well that. So I think if we find a good why to convince people, that's a good thing. Because a lot of people, you know, they already have a why, like that's, I was kind of mine. First of all, I wanted to look after myself individually because I know it's healthier. But then the bigger why was all kind of want to look after the planet at the same time. So if we, we find each other's whys and we use that, I think that will definitely make an impact, a positive impact on how people just go about their everyday lives, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a, a function in late Hinduism in some varieties of Hinduism and Buddhism called Pratichat Samupada which is like interconnectedness. And it's saying there is no such thing as altruism. To be concerned with the environment or others is the most selfish thing you can do. And that's not a bad thing. To be wholly selfish, to know that what you're doing to help others is selfish 
because it'll help you in the end, it's fine to say, well, since it's selfish, so I'm just going to just cut out the whole process of getting back to myself and just help myself is the worst thing you could do because in helping others, it helps you, whether it makes you feel better, it helps the environment, and then you can breathe or you know, you get to save someone else, something else, another sentient being is a brilliant thing. But it's like, if I decide to plant a tree, it might look like nothing now, but then down the line, that tree can spawn more trees. And then I've done something which in return helps me breathe because it's providing more filtration for the carbon in the atmosphere, creating a net carbon sink. So in the end, I may have done it thinking it was selfless, but since it helps me, it is in part selfish. And that's not a problem. I think people are always trying to um, either say, hey, I eat meat. And then you tell them the facts about factory farming and whatnot. And then it always comes down to, it, it's never any logical excuse. It's natural. Well, a lot of things are natural that we don't do. Um, well, it's the way we evolved. Well, we also didn't evolve with laptops or the internet, but we still managed to exist with those. And then it gets down to, well, I like or I want. And it always comes down to the to the ego, like I want. You know. I mean, I think a step, you know, as Layla had mentioned is like, you know, you're not gonna convince most people to drop it entirely, not offer it. And so, you know, even small things, not cutting out meat more often than not, or cutting out meat like specifically and being being specific, right? There's no there's no activism that's too small. Um, every every action helps in some way, you know. And hopefully, like the hope would be, you know, smaller things lead to bigger things. It's just patience with people and um, recognizing people's whys, you know, their motivations to do something. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you fully, Khalid. Um, as we have this conversation probably twice a day. Um, you know, we got nothing better to do at times. You do, I don't. But Layla, so I ask you now, since we're discussing this, and we will slowly shift as I love tangents away from this, what are you currently doing? Or do you have any organizations that you're currently working with? Or are you just talking to people that you meet on the street? Well, it's, to be fair, it's quite difficult to meet people on the street at the moment. Indeed. Because uh, as of now, uh, the UK and Wales, more strictly, were back into our second phase of lockdown. So okay. being able to socialise isn't really uh, as accessible as it may have been 12 months ago or so. So I think um this is where social media can help and has helped and um, with regards to like local organizations i haven't really um joined any or become a part of them it's kind of the larger ones where um i tend to get my information from and then just my own individual research i think um, and then the people that are close to me like my friends and family i talk to them about it i try and like put a few ideas in their heads that I think they might be um, open to or just talk about, you know, mm -hmm. like just being the friends here and there, you know, whether they want a carpool, whether they want to oh, try this new place, this new like vegan restaurant, you might like it. Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, just changing people's mindsets on things, trying mm. to have a conversation. There's a new documentary on Netflix, David Attenborough, guys. Oh, yeah. But, and yeah, um, he's someone that as a whole, I think the world love, if you don't love him, it's quite strange. Um, and he makes caring about the environment look cool. So even just little things like that, because as, as a whole, I think it's unfortunate that people tend to be quite shallow. We like to do what's cool. We like to do what looks good. Mm-hmm. So if it's important, look good and make it look cool. People are going to be more into it. So I think just trying to do it that way. Um, and I guess when socializing becomes more of a thing, I'd love to yeah do face-to-face um, meetings, join local groups, and then just expand mm-hmm. from there. yeah absolutely and whenever you're speaking with friends or family um are they are they pretty open i've met your father before he seems like a cool guy but are they are they open yeah they do tend to be open it depends what you talk to them about like there's certain things where they're like oh yeah i see where you're coming from Mm -hmm. and other things like you know you say oh i'm uh I'm vegan now. And they look at you as if to say, you know, you walk around barefoot hugging trees all day. And it's like, not like that. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess it's how you word things and you need to um, recognize the audience you're talking to. When you know them on a personal level, it's quite easy just to mm-hmm. make it more comfortable. But I think you need to kind of get what they think is cool, how they look at what you're doing um, before you go right into it. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, yeah, I'm quite lucky with the people I have around me. They are open-minded. I never feel like it's a, a battle between them. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Now to shift to something different. What do you plan on doing once a lockdown, if it ever ends, ends, or if we ever return return to that state of normality, normalcy? Uh, obviously, you're going to uni, so you're going to still be doing that but I assume your post-grad um, certificates aren't going to take that long no so the course I'm currently doing I will finish that next August and then from there um, I'm still debating whether to take a year out just because education for like 20 years is quite overwhelming and mm-hmm. um, or whether I'll go right into a two-year master's, which I would like to take in forensic psychology. Um, so as of now, COVID isn't really, I'm quite lucky it's not affecting or ruining anything I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Like everything I'm doing right now, I would have done. I'm just doing it with COVID around me. It hasn't mm-hmm. prevented me from doing what I wanted to do. And um, I can still play football. Mm-hmm. We're very safe and we're very um, cautious about everything. And it's not how it would have been, but ultimately I'm still playing which is good and the one thing that's preventing me from doing is traveling Mm -hmm. which I would love to do and would have loved to do this summer next summer and so on um but as of now it's just not it's not possible which is a big downer considering how many uh, friends I have in different countries that I'd love to see but obviously I can't um but other than that I think once COVID's gone that's that's ultimately the biggest thing I'd like to do and meet different people from different places that have the same interests as me. I really like when you kind of have a similar mindset from someone that grew up in a completely different environment, but somehow mm-hmm. your minds are the same. And you, you agree and you, you want the same things, mm-hmm. but ultimately the, the world you live in. So before 
COVID, I was looking at certain um, like volunteer groups and other continents and stuff. Mm. But right now, that's the only thing that's been put on hold. So I'd say I'm pretty lucky with regards to a global pandemic and how it hasn't completely ruined my life. Okay, cool. And I've always wanted to, to know a few things about Wales, which is a huge tangent from the podcast. Uh, you know, no weird questions as though I'm a, uh, was it a Britannophile? Someone who's obsessed with Great Britain? Yeah, I'm not one of those, but. Oh, great. Um, so I, I had a friend who I met uh, while in New Zealand and he was from Wales. And he goes like, yeah, it's pretty common to speak uh, Welsh. I suppose it's because he's uh, of direct Welsh ascent. He looks Welsh. Uh, so is it is it as common as he led me to believe like um an Afrikaner speaking Afrikaans but I know not that many people in South Africa speak Afrikaans except for Afrikaners yeah it it's not so much as um what you said like looking well specifically I think it's just where you're based in Wales mm -hmm. so if you're in the upper areas like West Wales and North Wales um Welsh tends to be the more commonly spoken language. Um, whereas if you're in the South or any like major cities like Cardiff, the majority of people just speak English and we barely know how to get by in Welsh. And anyone that does speak Welsh in the South of Wales, it wouldn't be as fluent as if you were in the North. It's not as natural. Like, um, so like we're taught it in school obviously, but it's not like seen as a first language. And I think after like 16 to 18, it just kind of, yeah. Unless you speak it in your home, Mm. cool so it's it's like the same for spanish in the u.s people usually learn it in in grade school intermediate school even high school and they get to college and it's like they never took spanish whatsoever i mean i don't right. think i don't think that it helps that culturally we kind of uh, are averse to mm -hmm. different languages yeah right. I very true I think it's quite ignorant as well. And I hate the fact that I can only speak one language. I literally just see it as such a disadvantage in so many aspects of life now. And given the fact I've met so many people that are not just bilingual, but multilingual, and here I am, I can get by in English. It's just, it's quite pathetic to be honest. So that's one thing I wish like schooling systems would do differently is make language more of a, like a common thing. Like you mm -hmm. learn math science why not learn another language you're going to need it and it's going to be more useful than algebra so <laughs> why not um yeah yeah i definitely agree with that the u.s being one of the only nations in the world that has no official language it's bizarre to me that a majority of the population does not speak another one and <laughs> what you said about math and science why not have another language course in like I've, I've visited schools where there are immersion programs. So there are like the maths and science courses are taught in a foreign language. So you have basically no choice. They don't just throw like year, year 11 in there and go like, cool, you're, you're learning math and French now, good luck. They like start from the bottom and then move up through immersion. And that has seemed to be successful for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's do it. Absolutely. So you How many languages do you speak? What's that? How many languages do you speak? Uh, I don't I don't like to discuss this. 
just quick question. I speak a few. Well, what ones? How many is a few? I guess a few is three. I'll say, okay, so I speak English, French. Um, sometimes I speak Spanish. I, I tell people I don't because I don't really like being caught off guard. Uh, Creole. I speak Fante sometimes if I'm in the situation. You know, Chui Wolof. I'm in the situation. I can understand Gullah. I can get around in Italian. I just prefer to, to you know, speak English, sometimes French. Most of the time, I just listen to people and don't talk. Impressive. Do my best. I got to learn more African and Asian languages so that whenever I'm marching with Black Lives Matter, I can be like, I don't only speak colonizer tones. Yeah. But we'll see. You still got time. You could you could probably pop out about six or seven by the time you hit thirty. Definitely could. If that's a goal, I reckon I'll, I'll aim for three by, by thirty. Three, you got it. Is Welsh in that list? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Welsh is not a very nice language. Like, I would recommend you guys listen to just a few sentences of Welsh. It's not a very pleasant language to hear nor speak. And it kind of just looks like someone shoved a few letters on a page. I, I could I could agree yeah. with that. I've read I've read a few things in Welsh and I was like, this isn't happening. Yeah, no. So it's not on my list. Um I love love Wales. I love being Welsh. Just not gonna do it. Mm -hmm. And have you guys always lived in the Cardiff area, your family? Yes. Yes? Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. I feel like I'm at a loss for questions. Khalid, help me out. You know, as as you know, racial tensions have definitely heated up over the course of this past six months. Are you privy to anything happening at our alma mater, our former institution? Um, I recently received an email actually oh. regarding the, the changing of the name. Young Harris, and it was the me reading that email was the first time I actually heard anything about it. I wasn't even aware that was going on, but as I was reading it, and I was so shocked. And then after I was shocked, I realized I wasn't shocked. Yeah, I realized <laughs> where Young Harris is, I realized the time period. I was like, no, that actually makes sense. And um, and then, but I was disappointed with the conclusion they came to, to be honest. And um, it was only upon the surface, like. Young Harris isn't, I never really saw it as a home to me. I was only there for a couple of years. Mm. I didn't feel really connected to the school and stuff, but I think for a lot of students and faculty that maybe do, where it affected them more and probably deeply, mm -hmm. I think that probably would have caused um, harsher disappointment to find that out. And you could say, there's arguments both ways. You could say it's just the name, but it's also what the name represents. And now what a lot of people will, think of when they hear the name because mm -hmm. now I, I mean I'll say young Harris and I that's what I think of absolutely so just, yeah so I was quite I, I was a lot of things when I read it but yeah I'm interested to know if you guys had anything to do with that were you a few of the people put it forward um I was aware of the uh I was made aware through a bunch of petitions that were going out to change the name yeah uh, and that was the first time I was aware of the fact that, yeah, I was a slave owner. So, you know, that was, that was a bit of a shock 
Um, but now I read the email and I wasn't surprised in the slightest because of who runs the school. But then uh, I was also like, also really a bad move because the school couldn't even manage to say Black Lives Matter, you know, yeah. when uh, people were being murdered. So I'm not surprised at all that they weren't going to budge on changing the name. They can, they can come out here. They can be like, hey, he inherited those slaves. So it, it's not as bad. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So like as, as someone who has a problem with, uh, you know, traditional um, continental African literature and as they're called artifacts, but historical objects, bodies being kept in museums and in Britain, France, uh, the Americas, all across the world. I have a problem with this, let alone building a monument. You know, we have Artemis Lester, who I assume was not a, a slave trader. We'll find out in the near histories if, if uh. he was. But we have the school built as a monument to this man. And we see monuments are coming down across the world. It's not like we said, burn the school. That's, that's not what anyone asked. I'm sure somebody said it. But all we had to do was, you know, change the name, switch around a few letters, uh, just make it YHC, just make it YHC, and then tell people it stands for something else. You don't have to change your website, which is not the best. You don't have to do anything, really. You just have to go ahead, call up the lawyer, get your, get your corporation license changed. It's like a $50 surcharge. And then that's it. You're no longer Young Harris College. You're like City Mountain College or something. I don't know. Um, I think it, times like this, you realize that people will say they care, but it's when it matters, no one cares enough. Mm -hmm. so. How is the, um, the racial situation within, uh, within where you are? So when the like the protests started out i think it was like towards the end of may and then throughout june um it was it was quite heavy to be honest i think living in larger cities like where i'm at it's a major city um you throw a lot more positivity from it um there were a lot of protests there was no like backlash for it really i was lucky because i came off facebook which is where you kind of find the most ignorant people i found and um, so I really, really exposed to, I think you get a lot of like the all lives matter people and, mm -hmm. you know, the ones complaining about, well, you know, racism and police brutality isn't an issue. Those people that just don't want to hear it and don't want to listen. I wasn't really exposed to much of that. And like I said before, just like the people I have around me are very open-minded and mm -hmm. I see aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So in the UK, I think, as much as there were like the odd pockets of ignorance, which you get everywhere, as a whole, we've done um, quite a lot and we've made strides towards it with regards to like certain monuments being taken down and um, petitions being made, just the way we go about things when it comes to racial profiling throughout the police force and everything. I think there are being steps made. It's not there yet. And racism obviously still is a thing, but with regards to progress, I'd say I'm fairly satisfied. I'm lucky in the sense that I've never really experienced any major racism, but I'm also aware that that isn't very common for someone that looks like me. 
So I'm aware I'm lucky, but I hate that I'm lucky. And that when it comes to most people that look like me, that isn't what happens. And I think once it's not lucky to be like me, it's common where you don't experience that, that's where we should be. And, and I also have the US to compare to that. And then I like, you see it on the news, to be honest, and it still looks like a mess. So I was kind of curious to see what you guys have to say about the current situation and just, especially with the election coming up. I always like to know what it's like living there because as of now, like CNN is probably like a comedy channel for us in the UK. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was just kind of interested to hear what you guys have to say about everything going on. Yeah, for for sure. Um, obviously, it's a good thing that not that much is happening in England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Isle of Man. You know, I, I try not yeah. to say Britain, um, Jersey. Uh, I think I got all of them. South Georgia Island. There we go. We got all of them. Okay. Um, ah, indeed. <laughs> because... You know, obviously, police brutality exists everywhere that police exist. It's the prison experiment. You know, whenever you select random people, give one the upper hand as the guards and make the others the prisoners. After a while, because the prisoners have dissidents, you know, dissent, uh, because they want more rights, as they should, the guards start to crack down in ways to, you know, terrify the other prisoners so that they fall into line. And people say, but my cousin was killed by a black police officer. The systemic racism is not inherent with the color of the police skin. It is inherent with the very position. The the slave uh, patrol, the catchers, were the police of the old world. And then they just slowly evolved and started adding minorities in there. There are some good people who identify as police officers. But once you're in the situation, just like if you're in the Marine Corps, you can be the best person, a scholar. As soon as you get there, it has to become you versus uh, me, them versus us, because your comrades won't allow you to think any other way. They'll be like, hey, but not all criminals, criminals aren't just bad people, they have bad circumstances. And then you'll have a, uh, a police vet walk in who has six gunshot wounds. And he'd be like, that's what I thought too, 20 years ago. And he'd be like, ah, cool. So you're indoctrinating people through personal experience. And then that turns them, then they get shot at once. And they go like, cool, I can't trust anyone. So now it's us against them. Even though they look the same as me, I'm a police officer and I'm trying to convince myself, I'm trying to protect the world, specifically this district where I'm, a public servant. So I am willing to brutalize someone if it means that I'm saving other people. You become the the mentality of the um, Abyssinian or the Pyrenees sheepdog amongst the the sheep. And then the criminals are the wolves. And it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. I think as far as like my personal experience, um, I mean, being at Young Harris definitely radicalized me. Um, I went to like middle and high school um, in predominantly black areas, predominantly black school. And so, you know, my exposure to 
racism, especially like overt racism was minimal, right? And so going to Young Harris and being called an N-word to my face, you know, and all the other different kind of nuances of that experience definitely kind of pushed me a little bit further. And so, you know, watching our current electoral process where it is so polarized on like issues of race, right? You have the Republican party that is pretty much racism is gone, doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then you have the democratic party that is like, you know, there's racism still, but there's still, there's still practices within the party that are still oppressive as well. So, you know, like looking at the political system, I'm just kind of like, both are oppressive for different reasons. Uh, bipartisan system has definitely served to kind of escalate on issues of like identity politics and dividing people to vote based off of their identity as opposed to different value systems. And so, you know, looking at um, vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, right? She, um, a lot of her black experiences are definitely being more publicized to try to um, garner more black votes and more kind of black solidarity with her. And so, you know, observing these different things, especially in lieu of the, the recent wave of police brutality and, you know, neither party really cares to do anything about it beyond lip service. Um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been interesting observing and, you know, it's, it's a hot mess um, watching debates like uh, Trump and Biden um, oh. and just how disorganized that was and, and, and just no, like a complete lack of respect for how those kinds of things should work in the first place. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's real fun being basically like the Western world's laughing stock. So, you know, enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to say to that. You guys kind of have taken the, the lead on that. It's just, it's crazy to watch it, knowing that I was there for four years. I think when I was there, I didn't feel like I was in it. I definitely feel like when you're a student, you are kind of, sheltered to that to an extent because to me I was always there as a student or as a student athlete I never knew what it was like to be an American citizen I never knew what it was like for that to be my home and ne I never felt like America was my home and I wouldn't really know how I would feel if America was my home mm -hmm. I think it would probably um just make make me look at myself in a different light I think a lot of um a lot of politicians they don't understand their lack of I'd say, how do I put this? Just, you can see that they they don't care enough and just the, the lack of things that have been done in order to prevent what's happening, the effect that will probably have on people as a whole, but especially younger people, they'll grow up just not really feeling like they're important. And that's not, that will in turn have an effect on generations to come. And I think people are they're caring about, you know, the votes and, you know, who's going to win this next election, but they're not looking far enough ahead on where the country's going to be in 10 years, where's it going to be in 20 years. And a lot of people, they'll make a vote on, you know, well, economics or, you know, well, I'm in this social class, so this is best for me and my family. Like, you can say that America's booming in one sense, which it no longer is, but it was. But I think where you live isn't just about your income or mm. something like that. It's about the social aspects. It's about how you feel mentally, how you feel like safety wise, like you feel comfortable walking in your neighborhood. You feel comfortable 
going to school, do you feel like you're going to be targeted in any sense? And it's a sense of, yeah, I just feel like it should feel like your home. And I feel for someone that looks like me, that looks any different from most of the White House, anyone that doesn't look like that, for it to feel like your home would have a detrimental effect on your mental health, I think. And that's something that's been disregarded, mm-hmm. in my opinion, for as long as the country's been around, really. I mean, look what it's built on. It's like, to an extent, you just kind of need to just scrap it all and start again. But no mm-hmm. one wants to do that because I think so many people like how it is and their life is fine. So that's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Definitely more attached to the system as it was. You know, I'm kind of envious, though, because like the way that uh, other countries managed this whole COVID crisis and, you know, months after the like the height of it, you know, things are starting to get a little bit more open. Right. And then you have us and it's like, hey, we need the economy to open. Uh, We don't care um, that there's a whole health crisis going on and you only get this little twelve hundred dollar stimulus tech. Have fun. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like the UK, we haven't done it perfectly. Like if we compare with our European countries, we're definitely slacking. And I, this isn't going to make you guys feel any better, but anytime the UK uh, messing up, I kind of just say, well, it could be worse. We could be the US. That's kind of how it is. So, yeah, it's not great, but it's not terrible. Like I, I think that as a whole, we're handling it to a certain extent. I think it's it's based on our government as well. Like we have a conservative government, which mm. um, a lot of people aren't a fan of. And although no, no political party is going to be perfect, I think they could have done certain things a lot better. But that's just how it goes with whoever's in, in charge, I suppose. But yeah, obviously, I think a lot of countries around the world are handling this greatly. Like you look at. New Zealand and they're just they've just kind of done it not perfectly but as well as you want to when it comes to a global pandemic and then you've got just complete hot messes like unfortunately the US and it's just like, <laughs> what on earth is going on <laughs> so yeah I, I'm envious of certain nations but also aware that okay it could be worse it's just it's all up in the air right now and I think we're all just waiting for things to go back to normal but that needs to stop because that's probably not going to be for a while. So yeah, yeah my um, graduate program was definitely like, Hey, we're still uh, online next quarter. Sue. So yeah. um, through December through like March, we're still online. Um, but now I'm envious of like New Zealand, just in general, um, they had one mass shooting and then they banned all assault rifles. Like that's how oh, it's yeah. done. That's, that's, that's so simple. And then you look at us and it's like how many have we had and um nothing's been done so you know i think uh, i think we've had a few dozen thousand just a few yeah at least at least twelve thousand shootings in public pretty sure those are the numbers i don't know when that starts it might be like the 70s but that's still a lot because australia banned um rifles like a lot of guns obviously there's still hunters in like 1991 92 after a mass shooting uh new zealand restricted theirs because they're like hey you know australian sensibilities a lot of people think similarly in new zealand so we're just gonna take the move forward um it was enough but there are ways that people get around 
of the law. Like, like we have people who are on, on like Instagram going like, this is my AK-47. I'm wearing a mask because this is illegal, but this is fully automatic. Um, if anyone wants to know how to get one, just send me a DM. I'm like, oh, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, when it comes to things like with gun violence and that, it's just quite amusing to me because it's not complicated. There are minimal factors involved in that. There's the crazy person holding a gun and there's a gun. And it's ultimately, what can you take away? You can't get rid of all the crazy people in the world mm-hmm. or in your country, but you can get rid of accessibility to guns. But again, I go back to people want to claim to care and they'll send out their thoughts and their prayers to the mm-hmm. people that harmed and killed ultimately in these shootings, but then they don't want to do anything to prevent it happening again. So you care, but you don't care enough, or you just don't care at all and you're just acting like you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Definitely. Because I, I do truly feel that people who commit these acts of violence are either not being heard by someone else, you know, not to not to absolve them of blame at all, but they're not being heard by someone who they need to speak with, you know, mental health counselor or whatnot, or like you said, they are, you know, I don't think anyone is normal, but I think uh, what we consider normal are people, because I think a lot of people, you know, would be what mainstream society considers sociopaths or psychopaths, but they're able to do face work, you know, and pretend like they're normal well enough for people not to know, because that's what the, the clinicality or the criminality of uh, clinical research has done, Foucault says. He's like, hey, we're all a little bit weird. Your job, unfortunately, in modern society is just to pretend that you're normal so you don't get thrown in a padded room. And, and some people just can't continue to do it. So they, they snap or they're like, no, I see that nothing matters. So it's just, it's over. If I can't be the way I am, then I'm just gonna take it out on everyone else. So I, I think it, it comes from both the access to the guns, you know, cause some yeah. people are like, well, if they don't have a gun, they'll use a knife. They might still kill people, but you're not killing 35, 50 people at a Texas concert with a knife. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's good what you mentioned there, because both issues can be taken care of. You can take away the accessibility of the guns, and you can also look to care about the people that ultimately want to get the guns, because they're doing it for a reason. Everyone does something for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's not just because. And you go back and you think, yeah, no one is normal. That is a very good way to put it. Society has like this idea of you know, where you fall into and what you should do and what you should be and all that. And then if you don't, you're, you're crazy or you're, you know, you're something like this, something like that. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we're all just, we're all just individuals mm-hmm. that have been kind of, I think we categorize just to simplify. Like we're, we always look to make shortcuts and make things easy to understand. But we just fail to understand the individual. And sometimes all it takes is to listen to someone. Like that person that wanted to shoot 50 people, they weren't born that way and they probably weren't like that five years ago no one just randomly wants to shoot 50 people maybe for throughout their whole i don't know high school life they were treated like they were nothing every single day mm-hmm. and then they begin to hate those around them and etc so yeah i just think people need to listen more it sounds silly and just so minor 
but ultimately that's all it is. We we don't want to understand. We don't want to listen to understand. We just want to hear someone out and then give our two pence. Mm-hmm. I think politically that's probably why we're as divided as we've ever been as well. You're either one or the other when that's not how life is. It's not black and white. Like the whole whole of life is a rainbow. Like you're always mm-hmm. going to be in between. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just accepting that people are different and people need to listen more and just be open to different things ultimately. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And not to conflate the two, but this does, as Khalid, we've talked about before um, on the podcast, in fact, with, you know, in a mixed economy, capitalism, mercantilism, what, what have you, uh, we have a notion of which people are uh, usable or for the economy, you know, so even with in the 60s, 70s, we had people labeled as catatonic schizophrenics, people who were unable to communicate easily with other people who sat there and thought about things. Some of them were very good at doing very specific tasks, but could not function on their own. Now we realize some of these people would be on the autism spectrum scale. Um, And these catatonics are now mainstream society says low functioning, high functioning, Um, except, you know, L, the L series is used by most people who use the diagnostic to analyze autism, saying that there is no low functioning or high functioning since it is a spectrum. There is, you fall somewhere in this three dimensional chart that is autism spectrum disorder. But people are like, oh, he's very high functioning, which immediately clicks in my mind. Ah, capitalism. He functions normally enough to get a job and to contribute to the economy or low functioning, unable to get a job, going to be a burden. And then this this leads to further issues because, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous. Yeah, I think it is dangerous how certain things are categorized and you get some people that they hate being politically correct all the time and I don't even think it's it's just about being politically correct it's just mm-hmm. about being um sympathetic and empathetic mm-hmm. to the the person at hand because usually we are talking about people and just how you how you see them and the name that you give to whatever part of them mm-hmm. you're talking about ultimately is reflecting how they'll feel about themselves and how others will feel about them like you just said high functioning low functioning it all stems down to how much can they contribute to the economy or mm-hmm. to their living and yeah that shouldn't determine a person's value mm-hmm. so it's, it's just one of those things where you kind of just want to scrap it all and start again but how do you start again when it's this messy mm-hmm. i'd love to hear more about um soccer and um your career in that actually just to kind of like change gears a little bit I, am, uh, I love football honestly I've been playing since I was like seven or eight and now I'm back with my team that I played throughout juniors with so I was with them from like nine until 18 and then I went out to the U.S. now I'm back this is my first season as a senior player so I'm like playing like senior football um and it's it's COVID style so you know we're very clean Mm-hmm. Coaches wear masks when we travel. We all got to wear masks, sanitizing, and all that stuff. But it's still football, so I, I'm I'm quite satisfied with that. And I just I'm lucky in a sense I have something I love that much, and it's it's good competition. It's different from college, 
I definitely feel like I was ready to leave college sports and just go back to playing competitively. And mm. um, yeah, that aspect of it, I, I love. And I think as a whole in the UK and Europe in general, football is like the the biggest sport. So, and it's great for me growing up just watching women's football develop. Like ten years ago, it just wasn't a thing. Or you know, you get bullied, or you just be like, well, boys are meant to play this. You know, boys play football and rugby, and girls can do. You know, they can play with their dolls and go outside and all that stuff. It's different now, and mm. um, and it's sounds constantly progressing. It's not there yet. Obviously, there's still like equal pay issues and stuff. But I guess because I've just always played football because I love it. It doesn't bother me personally, mm. but collectively, I'd like to see that improve. And mm. um, but as far as the standard goes and just me enjoying what I'm doing, I I can't really complain. I just I love playing football. What's the biggest difference between um, collegiate football and what you're currently doing now? Um, collegiate, it's definitely more, I'd say, commercialized. Um, and depending on the sport, you know, whether you've got a big hype, like obviously you get the D1 teams, um, basketball, football, sometimes soccer, you know, you get these massive crowds, which is just insane because like college sports isn't a thing over here. Or anywhere, I don't think. That's just a, an American thing. Um, yeah, just the way it's endorsed. It's very similar to being professional, I think. The way you're treated. Um, you know, you get the trainers. You get the looking after. Uh, special treatment, in a sense. Yeah, I definitely feel like I was baby as a, as a college athlete. Definitely. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I'd say it's, it's probably just as competitive. I hate how short the season is. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, ultimately, you're just playing a sport and you get to play with people from all over the world. That's a, that's a good thing, too. I definitely met a lot of people I wouldn't have just from playing soccer. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's crazy to me that college sports is such a big thing there. Just I don't, I don't know where that came from, but I think that's what drew me out there in the first place. Just to experience it was good, but I'm, I had my four years. I'm glad that I'm, I'm out of it now. I think I'm just glad I'm out of the US in general, but yeah. Ooh, I always kind of think, oh, I always kind of like college sports as like people being commodified simply for what they can do. So like, we'll throw you whatever amount of money as long as you play good. And the second you, uh, the second you're no longer able to contribute as much as we'd like, there goes your scholarships, there goes your mm-hmm. access to education, um, and for you know people with a little bit less access to education, right? Um, not like probably don't have like the means to afford it without that scholarship, you know, all you're denoted to is what you can physically bring. And so, you know, I definitely noticed that, especially within these, these college, um, these college teams. Yeah, I think that goes back to what Ashish was saying. Ultimately, it's all about what you can contribute, which um, I mean, sometimes it's someone's lifeline because there are certain kids I feel that, you know, they wouldn't be able to afford college tuition because it's extortionate in the US. I can't believe the price of it. Forty mm-hmm. fifty years to study, like for a degree. And it's like in certain countries, not only is it just a fraction of that, it's free mm-hmm. ultimately. And if, if it wasn't for me playing a sport and um, being decent at academics, there's no way I would have been a able to afford that 
So it helps to a certain extent when you're physically able to do something or you're gifted academically. But again, it just goes back to what if you're a kid that can't contribute in a sport? Are you less valuable? Well, you are seen less valuable as an athlete that can perform well on a field or on a court. And I just, it's a hard way to to take in, I suppose, if you're that kid that isn't the athlete. And you Probably how you feel in the classroom, probably how you feel going to that college. Like the, the athletes are just kind of seen as like the gods on campus. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure why. I think, <laughs> yeah. no, seriously. It's just, they're doing something they love. But yeah, okay, it's a part of the college, but that, that shouldn't give them special treatment. Absolutely. I don't see why makes them any different from a student like you're a student and an athlete mm-hmm. but you're seen as a student athlete I don't see why it's put together yeah yeah that's that's certainly true um I think at Young Harris maybe uh I like the term uh, athletes are seen as gods that's that's a very interesting <laughs> way to, to think about it I don't know because Khalid and I um like the others yeah, we, we know the reason why, but we, we, I know you, Khalid, felt comfortable hanging out with the athletes, and we would notice, like, underclassmen uh, would not feel comfortable talking to athletes. It partly has to do because of the melanin in our skin that we're probably more comfortable talking to the athletes, <laughs> as, as, you know, a lot of the athletes were um, from other countries where they yeah. are the majority or the minority, but they look closer to us. So it's like, yeah. cool, I can walk up to him, even though he's from Congo, you know, it's fine. We can still chat because while he's here, he knows that the police are looking at him the same exact way as me. It might not <laughs> happen back home in France, but you most certainly know you can catch a bullet. So, so I'm just going to chat with you about that and then we'll be fine with it. And I feel that there is a, a sort of disconnect whenever you're just like an underclassman going through the motions you might see these athletes as as gods or worse yet, you know, you have some young philosophers who are seniors and you're an underclassman and then you see people who are like fawning over them. And then you have like, you, you never met him, but a, a very cool guy named Ramin Renhorn, who is, uh, uh, who is from Germany. And um, he was a young philosopher and he was he was quite cool. Quite cool. Quite cool. As the kids say. I don't say that. I just say he was a, a nice guy. He was like very good. I think he played midfielder. I didn't watch his games. I'm not gonna lie. Um, uh, no, all around cool guys in my philosophy class. And then people, because he barely talked to anyone, would be like, Oh my god, is that Ramin? Oh my god. I'd be like, yo, what's wrong with you? Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why there is that disconnect. Because, like, growing up in the UK, I mean, like, varsity sports, that's not even a thing. You know, like, we have PE, and, you know, we might have after-school sports we play, you know, netball, football, baseball, whatever. But it wasn't, like, integrated into the school, if you know what I mean. So you will go to school, you'd be classmates, you'd be students, you'd be friends. And then anything you did outside of that was separate. You wouldn't, you weren't seen as like, you know, the star football player or, you know, the basketball player. You were just seen as one of someone's mates or a classmate or something like that. There was no, there was no disconnect in that sense. And I think ultimately that's probably why 
my high school experience and would have been university experience if I would have stayed here would be a lot different from an American. Mm-hmm. And I think when you t- when you meet Americans and they find out that that's how you're brought up, that's so crazy to them because they just grew up in the whole like jock era and like you get cheerleaders and it's it's literally just like the movies. Like mm-hmm. I watch American films and stuff. I just, it, it's crazy that it's it's just like that. Mm-hmm. So. I think that creates a disconnect which just kind of expands after people leave college mm-hmm. I don't um, so you went to this small liberal arts uh, Christian affiliated university in the mountains unfortunately yes I did <laughs> uh, you, you went to a community college before which may have been a slightly different experience but if you perceived ours as like being from the movies um, so I live uh, very close to University of Georgia. And I remember I was taking classes during high school at like a large D1 school. It is more like the movies than the movies whenever people are fawning over athletes because they're actually people, you know, whenever like young ladies or young guys or young uh, gender indescript individuals who are fawning over these athletes, they're like, oh, this might be my ticket to never work again because you can almost guarantee that they're going pro. They're yeah. Sign a contract of at least $800,000 a year. Even if they're, if they're like on the practice team, at least 200K. And it's like, we're fine. So let's just, let's just go in there. Let's become this one significant other and then just wait for the paper to roll in. How yeah. Is- oh, go on. Um, I always think about like how we elevate celebrities right mm-hmm. um we like we put them on these pedestals it's, it's almost you know like worship right um they are these big figures in society and so we kind of put that same importance on sports right like um it's all about entertainment and entertainers are our biggest commodity and mm-hmm. so even on like a collegiate level despite the fact that people like students you kind of throw away that humanity. Mm-hmm. They're literally there for our personal enjoyment. They're there for our entertainment. That's all they are. Um, and so, you know, we, we latch on to this idea of them being bigger than what any human being should be. Um, this should be, period. You know, everybody's a person. Everybody is, you know, human. And so elevating people, honestly, is detrimental to our society and people's general sense of like self in general um and like on the collegiate level right like these people are students you know they're there for education the same as anybody else and so you know now they have this additional added pressure um despite doing something that they love on top of you know getting an education and so then they get this huge amount of pressure from college from you know, people that are in the community um, and students themselves. And um, a lot of people just crack under that. And uh, it's just not healthy in general. Yeah, I've definitely seen it um, like firsthand and secondhand, just how the pressure can get too much because it is a lot, especially when people feel it as individuals and they don't feel like they have the support because ultimately most people are, that are playing a sport, they're doing it because they love it, or at least I hope they are. And then when all, you know, your grades, your attendance and just how you behave in college 
rests on whether you get to play that sport because it's all connected ultimately it can be a lot and then to add on top of that not only do you want to play it you want to play it well so when you underperform at practice or at games it all adds up and then that later affects probably you in a classroom because it's all integrated it, it can be a lot I think it it just kind of depends on how you look at it to an extent yeah because I, I I considered doing cross country at Young Harris uh, my freshman mm-hmm. year and then you know they pulled it um, but I had ran track and cross country through high school and my coach was um he had like coached on like the Olympic level. So really big high, like really big standards, uh, hard, like a lot of dedication. There was no free time. Um, it was school and track and cross country. That was it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was really much else outside of that. Um, and, you know, I found myself kind of slipping academically just because of how devoted I ended up being, you know, as far as my time went to athletics. Mm-hmm. I was or how well I'd be able to manage um, when I went to school. Um, I mean, I definitely considered one because I wanted a little bit more scholarship money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, get, the, the program got pulled like a year later, so it wouldn't have been doing much for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Khalid. I was strongly considering running cross country at Young Harris because I ran cross country uh, and wrestled in high school and I wasn't wrestling at a collegiate level so I was like cool we're gonna do this and then I was like talking to um Abraham Aziz and he's like no nah, man well we're leaving it's over young Harris is done I was like, well, that's that's the end of my running career so you guys both uh, yeah and- what makes you cross country like I only run for football I would not run like <laughs> <laughs> no, I've always been curious. Like, why do you, why do you like running? Do you like running? No, I don't. I I go running like at least once a week. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. It's 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 peaceful. Um, I kind of preferred cross country to track just because track was, I mean, it was faster paced, but you know, mm. it's the same. You're saying the same thing for most. Oh people. yeah, that's boring. It's kind of aesthetically not pleasing, but um, cross country, you know, the trails were nice. Um, mm-hmm. a bit of a longer, a bit of a longer run, but um, you know, it's it's scenic and like when I run for myself personally, you know, it's mm-hmm. good to kind of uh, get out. Um, yeah, yeah. I like running with headphones in. Yeah, just exactly. having time in my zone. But I know it's like a cross country. You don't get earphones and you're surrounded by other people oh. running. <laughs> yeah. But I just really felt I'd enjoy that. See, personally, I don't run with any music. Um, I don't like listening to things. I like maintaining my cadence. I'm way faster now than I ever was in high school or during like the first year of college. So I don't know. Maybe I just, because like in high school, I was like, cool. The reason why I started running in high school was I missed the bus one day. So I went to my math teacher and I was like, yo, I missed the bus. And he was like, cool, I'll take you home. But you got to come to cross country practice because he was a cross country coach. And yeah. he was like, cool. So you got you to gotta participate this one day. Luckily for you, it's the second day of practice. And I was like going through the woods with him. And I was like, yo, why are they running so much? And I, I just dropped it. And he was like, yeah, we also had summer practice. So if you had went to that, then you would be prepared. 
but school practices is like halfway through the practice season. And I was like, well, now I know. And he's like, cool, I'll take you home. Uh, but I want you to come out next time. And then, so then I started um, running cross country. So I didn't have to ride the bus home. And I started riding my bike to school, which wasn't allowed. Uh, so I had to hide my bike in his truck. Um, Why wasn't it allowed? Yeah, that's really weird. Yeah, I don't know. I At the time, I lived with my mother in high school. So I was only three miles from school. But they're like, no, no, it's too dangerous. The buses are concerned that they can't see you. And I was like, all right. I'll just not get hit by a bus. Uh-huh. And then, so I had to start hiding my bike. It was a whole ordeal, but nonetheless, we made it through. That's a lot weird. That, that's really strange. <laughs> it's also never heard... Georgia, so no one really rides a bike anywhere. Yeah, I actually don't recall seeing anyone on a bike the whole two years I was there. That's really weird. <laughs> um, There were, like three people that rode bikes uh, my freshman and sophomore year. And uh, that, that, I think that was it. Yeah. I used to get, um, what was it, a few of us? Like, I know Hayden. He had a bike, a road bike. I used to ride my road bike, and then people would look at me like I was insane, wearing Lycra in the middle of Georgia. There's definitely a stigma attached to riding a bike. Why? Well, I love riding a bike. Oh, it's American individualism. You want to drive your own car. You want to get everywhere you want. Whenever people ask you for something, uh, you say, okay, we'll drive separately. Let's waste the most amount of fuel. There will be no carpooling. If you ask for a ride, I'm going to tell you where you can go buy a car with debt. Yeah, and, uh, public that's like non-existent unless you live in a city. Yeah, 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 it's, it's that's so true. Bad. I mean, I like MARTA, um, our, our transit system here in, here in Atlanta or the metro Atlanta area. Um, it's just the train isn't super accessible. Like you have to manage to like get to a train station that's um, further out unless you live in like a more urban area. Mm -hmm. uh, but I prefer riding the train to driving. I prefer public transport, like, public transport to driving in general. But it's not yeah, a not to buy a car mm -hmm. like it's not it's not exactly cheap you know what i mean and like some people it is just more easy to use public transport i don't know why it's more not more accessible but i think ultimately it would have better effects all around but yeah i think it is the case of that individualism everyone wants to have that independence have their own car when mm -hmm. it doesn't really add to anyone's independence yeah it's it's actually funny yeah. that you say that um because we had Layla Sonora on the podcast, who's an advocate for cycling and uh, really? public transportation. And we were chatting about that. And um, yeah, yeah, it'd be very interesting. Because like, I like not living in a big city. That's because I'm paranoid. And I'm like, yo, if a bomb gets dropped, I will be obliterated in a big city. Because you know, I'm always... Why is that where your mind goes? Why is that where you're like... I've watched way too many post-apocalyptic films. I'm like, yo, if they if they come for us, you should is. um watch a rom com. I, I love uh, Khalid. Khalid knows this. I love romance films. One of my top films is uh, Before Sunrise uh, by Richard Linklater. I love romance films, but I cannot stop watching post-apocalyptic films either. Okay. 
So like if we had buses like the Greyhound, um, I don't know what they're called in London. You have like transports that go from cities to rural areas to like pick up people and then bring them back. Um, like if we had rural Greyhounds. But then there's just trains and buses that go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great? I wish. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so easy. It's so simple. I mean, I, I kind of understand, like, once you get in Appalachia or, like, uh, the Rockies, having a train, you either have to destroy the environment by drilling a hole through the mountain, which is what happens in the Rockies. They go through. Or in Appalachia, you have roads around the mountain, which make them notoriously unsavory to drive. And, well, for me, I, I just play Tokyo Drift and go up. But there are a lot of wildlife that, that roam these areas. So I just think like high speed train, like the like the U Rail, just I guess Amtrak. We did have high speed train. Uh, Amtrak just going through Western America. I just imagine a brown bear just walking across the line. Just right when yeah. the train comes. There's so much wildlife. It's not a very like densely populated area. Besides the colleges, that's probably brings in the most mm-hmm. of the population. So I guess if it's not going to be used very often, then it, yeah, it would be just a waste to ruin the wildlife and the environment that surrounds it. But I think in like areas like the suburbs or anything like mm-hmm. a, that's a little bit less than a suburb, it, it definitely should be more of a thing. Just mm-hmm. for young people that are looking for jobs, that probably can't get a job to. Mm-hmm ultimately won't be able to afford the things they want, which is probably like a car, maybe. They yeah. won't have access. have to rely on their parents to take them places mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think it, it should definitely be based on how often it's going to be used and just the accessibility of it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was a big thing for me coming to the US and not having public transport. I lived in a suburb my first two years, and if I couldn't get a lift off my mates, I'd have to, like, catch an Uber or something, whereas I was oh. just getting a Okay. Um, there's this whole thing about like um, accessibility, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you make things more accessible for everybody, then there's more chance everybody to use it, right? If we made public transportation more easily accessible, um, you know, if it was able to get to um, more suburban areas, right, then or people recognize that that's an option, like a feasible and viable option to use, and would be more inclined to do so. Um, it's just not presented as such because, um, you know, we want you to buy a car. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the money in public transport, you know, because it's better for the people that can't afford it, but there's money mm-hmm. in cars, money in oil and petrol and gasoline. So. I, I'll go one step further. Not only is it for, for big oil and um, vehicle companies, but I would say that, you know, white flight moving to suburbia, making it so that only people who can afford cars can go into the city to work a good enough job to have the money to afford to live in suburbia. So that uh, creates another barrier for entry for minorities because they would be too far to receive public transport to get into the city, so they choose to live in the inner city, so they can walk to their job, 
but it just so happens that the job that's close enough for them to walk doesn't pay enough for them ever to move out to suburbia. I completely agree. But then you you bring up these things and certain people will just assume that you're making it up or, you know, you're making these connections. They don't exist and there's no way a system could be that racist or that mm-hmm. negative to minorities. And I'm like, you're living proof because you live in a suburb and how many yeah. people look like you just mm-hmm. from there. It's not a coincidence. I remember um, one of my really close friends uh, and he was showing me pictures of his, he was um, Hispanic and he was showing me a picture of his, um, it was, what do you guys call it? You call it elementary school, I think. Yes. All the, it was like just a class picture and I was like do you not see the connection here I was like what I was like every single kid in this picture is Hispanic mm-hmm. and he happened to live in um, a really rough area of Detroit and I was like don't you think that's weird that you all look like this and he was like no that's just just how we grew up and I was like mm-hmm. but I but I guarantee if you went to a really nice area in the suburbs of Michigan uh all the kids bar maybe one or two would be white and it's like the system is it stems so far back and it's just progressed so far, but they've given different names to it and they're, they're different barriers, like you said, that it's not seen as blatantly racist, but mm-hmm. just open your eyes a little bit more. It actually is blatantly racist, just what's accessible to certain people and certain opportunities that people are given. And then from there, it's just ultimately the chances of you succeeding are so slim but then you get the people that do succeed that happen to be of a minority. And then you get the the majority saying, well, there you go. There's a minority that succeeded. There's no way they're supposed to be racist. Mm-hmm. There's just so many things that just kind of, they contradict each other and that they're used against each other when ultimately it's all evidence. But it's just, it depends how people want to look at it and how people want to use it. But I definitely mm-hmm. agree with what Ashish was saying, that these little things that are seen as difficult and uh, barriers to certain people are literally mostly to certain people mm-hmm. and they're there for free unfortunately nothing's an accident mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I can I can sit my mother lives in a suburb now um, but to leave you know I think no no um, whenever people used to come over, I would actively invite people over and they'd be like, oh, where do you live? I was like, oh, you know, my mother lives in the apartments. Most of the time I stay here during school. And then to, that, that's a term that I use because, you know, living in rural Georgia, there are only, you know, maybe, maybe like three black families in my area. So I was like, cool, I live in the apartments. And then those kids, they didn't know exactly what I was talking about. But whatever white kids would come, they'd be like, oh, this is government housing. I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, it is. Section 8, the projects, welcome. <laughs> and then they'd be like, oh, no, I'd be like, there are only old people that live here. This is rural Georgia. Only old black people move here because no, no young black person would choose to move to a place like this. Only people who bring their families here because it's a cheaper place to live. Uh, the schools score decently um, on standardized testing, you know, so it makes it easier to have your kids at school to work like in a big city and then come back here because you save more money. So eventually you can leave or elderly people 
because you know they're they've done a lot of what they want to do just a very affordable most of the time government subsidized place to live so they can use their funds to support their family or to to go travel but to everyone else it looks like a stigma i don't want to be anywhere near the uh the project because you know the the term meaning that it's always being built up but for some reason it's seen as negative like uh it'll never be uh what it was intended to be well, I think it's exactly what it was intended to be. Khalid? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my, I have family that's from the project. My mom is from the project. And uh, the only time that it's been built up, like it got built up, like I want to say four or so years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that was because newer apartments were being built up, like, relatively close so it's only built up to look more appealing to mm -hmm. constituents that they're actually trying to bring in yeah and then the you know the 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 funny thing it's like an inverse graph you build these places to support uh low income people or people who can't get housing anywhere else and then you make them look sort of nice on the outside, like you said, to have real estate projects, have other people buy land. And, but these are the people who live in the project who make it look sort of like, oh, we have diversity. So the other people move in, we're going to vote. But the people who live in the projects don't have the time to research candidates or to vote because they always have to work because they're usually working jobs where they're, they're making enough to support their children or their families, but just a little bit lower than what's necessary to get housing somewhere else. So they have this government subsidized house. Um, so they all are always at work or always like filing away things to make sure that they don't lose where they're staying or putting food on the table. So they don't have the time to vote. And like here in, um, in my town, um, I like came back recently from a, a long trip and I saw there's a biomass facility that's being built that, that burns um, like what should be used to make compost. So it burns it for energy. And then I, I started doing research and I realized the energy is, is um, they're processing things, but they're also sending the energy to a town that's not the town in which I live which is predominantly white. And it is like the, the big town before you get to Clemson in Georgia. So it's like it, the energy is being produced in a smaller town in the, in the county seat actually, so the main city. But there's another city that's bigger and you know, less diverse. So they're receiving the power, but you know, because of uh, environmental racism or in this factor, environmental classism, because it's still mostly white you put the biomass facility producing the smog in the town that, where the people are always at work. So they didn't have the opportunity to go vote at 11 a.m. because everyone happens to work nine to five. So we're gonna hold this vote at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. So barely anyone can come out except for the people who like run their own business or who are like the leaders of the business who are like, hey, I'm gonna go vote, I'll be back. Quite sad when you think about it. Because there's so many things to think about and you just you kind of it is overwhelming to think well how can you fix each of these little things 
like the fact that racism and classism there they happen and they occur in so many sectors of everyday life yeah. and everything and then it's it's quite uh draining because then you get like well that's all you do is talk about it and it's like well how can you not talk about it when it's it literally hovers over so many people's lives and just because it doesn't affect you i think that's a big thing is if mm -hmm. it doesn't affect you, don't really care like the people that live in that big town they're reaping the benefits of something that they don't even know that's happening or they don't want to mm -hmm. hear this happening their life is fine mm -hmm. and yeah and like you said the people that can't afford to vote like well that's ultimately like each i took one class in the american government and it just blew my mind how blatantly obvious the whole mm -hmm. government scheme is and just when it came to voting and how like you know women were given the right to vote and well not women white women were given the right to vote mm -hmm. and black people were given the right to vote but there were certain like um there were certain conditions mm -hmm. that were given for them to vote and now these conditions don't exist but mm -hmm. certain setups are made up so mm -hmm. it's not a condition necessarily but the people that are making up are aware that only certain people can afford to do so or can afford to access it. And it's just all about accessibility, really. And then people say, well, yeah, because you wonder why so many people don't vote. And surely it's not because like 50% of the country don't want to vote or are that ignorant. Mm -hmm. I, do, I do just think that, like what you said, like some people don't have the time, not even just to vote, but to, to research what they're voting for, because you don't want to waste a vote either. And just able to, and also voting for a party that's actually going to help benefit you and those around you. And and I've seen this so many times: vote for those that don't have the voice or aren't able mm -hmm. to, and vote for others that don't look like you and don't have the life that you do. And I think that's really important. And I think that's a big thing that we've pushed for. I think with all the attention, not just racial tension, but tension throughout the whole the whole of the country really it's just about thinking of those that don't have the same life that you do like if you're satisfied with your life why don't you want that satisfaction for everyone absolutely and this leads to my next question so you live in uh, what the rest of the world calls the united kingdom and yeah uh brexit happened uh you did oh. excellent okay brexit uh so now you're uh, removed from the EU zone. I don't think Britain was ever in Schengen visa zone. Um, so there were probably French nationals who were living and working in England at, and mm -hmm. vice versa. Um, people from all around Europe were li living visa-free, able to work. And then with Brexit, there was a potential for expulsion. Like, hey, you need to get a visa. Um, we have created some mandates where your uh, career should, your, your place of employment should offer you visas because you had a, a good standing. But then there are some people, because it's very hard to fire people in, in France, I assume it is in England as well. So there are some people where they're like, hey, you weren't the top worker, so we're just not gonna give you a visa, good luck. And then just uh, sending uh, people out. Well, with Brexit, the thing is, our, our government did a terrible job. It was very sad that unfortunately we did leave. I was not a voter for the leave campaign. I voted to remain, but that wasn't the case. 
Um, but then, yeah, it took two and a half to three years to, with all the negotiations with the, the European Union and everything. And then mm. even then, but with no deal. And then it's like, well, what, what on earth is that? All, like, why? That was just so unnecessary. It's like we've made this big deal to become independent and do our own thing. And we've kind mm. of just screwed ourselves over in the end. I don't think it brought any benefits to anyone in the UK, outside of the UK. We were better tied to the EU. But yeah, when it comes to the visas, because I was noticing that being a student now, and uh, EU students still come under domestic when it comes to education. Okay. So I'm not sure whether that might be similar in a lot of workplaces or whether they're just the, the consequences of the referendum haven't hit that yet. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, it did just kind of limit so many people. So many people that have been comfortably living in the UK or the vice versa were from the UK and living in a European country, living their life. And then you just kind of want to cut that tie. Mm. And then your life just kind of gets flipped over. And it is, I don't know why so many nations are just so obsessed with keeping things conservative, I suppose. Like, yeah. let's Britain British. Yeah, yeah. Like, the nationalism, that, isolationism. Yeah, and it's so, it's sickening, honestly, because it's just so ignorant. Like, you, you claim that you just want to be, like, no one's 100% anything. Let's be mm-hmm. real. Yeah. No one. Whether you're a mix of, um, like, Scandinavian and, like, Eastern Europe, or you're a mix of all the continents put into one, so there's just this whole conception of keeping it British and keeping it national and keeping it independent is just, it's stupid. And it's just limiting us in the long run, I think. Like, I don't see why someone from outside the UK could be, like, this from a certain area, maybe the Middle East is looked down upon because they want to move to the UK. But a young person that wants to go and travel and live in Italy for a year, like, that's, that's seen as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like, why can't we accept that we're all human beings free to go wherever we want study work wherever we want like there there shouldn't be boundaries on each nation i don't see why that's a thing Mm -hmm. yeah i i definitely think that brexit as a whole was just a complete hot mess almost to the scale of the u.s to be fair we really screwed up there so 